this gives you a plan B and C for some people. And so what it means is it helps you network. It helps you connect with interesting work that's happening that you might be interested in. So for example, you know, if I left Amplitude, I would be able to really easily get a job as a full-time coach at a company, probably coaching their internal teams. And that might be really interesting to me, but I wouldn't necessarily be forced to go out and contract, you know, be a consultant to do those things. In a world of career uncertainty, there is one variable you have total control over, yourself. Welcome to Forever Employable Stories, where expert digital transformation consultant and successful entrepreneur Jeff Gotthelf will share conversations with unique and inspiring individuals who have taken charge of their professional lives, leveraged their expertise, built an audience, and future-proofed their careers so you can learn how to do the same. Here's your host, Jeff Gotthelf. In the world of digital product management, there are many leading voices. Often, it takes them years to be heard and to become thought leaders. In this conversation with John Cutler, we take a look at John's passion for product management and his ability to write, create, record, and produce content at a rate that is, in a word, it's incredible because he is so prolific and he uses everything that he's learning from each one of those experiments to build a bigger and a broader following, all in service of staying employed full-time in-house, which is what's really interesting. Let's find out why John plans to stay employed in-house. Take a listen. Folks, welcome back to another episode of Forever Employable Stories. We've got a great one for you this time around. As always, on this episode of Forever Bullet Stories, we have product management thinker, prolific writer, and generous sharer of knowledge. Plus, he has a full-time job, which is super interesting, as product evangelist and coach at Amplitude. Please welcome John Cutler to the show. John, welcome. Yeah, thank you so much. Great to be here. I am thrilled to have you. I've enjoyed your work and your writing for many years, and it made total sense to have you on the show for Employable Stories because you're doing this stuff, and you're doing this stuff in a really interesting context, which we are going to get to in just a little bit. Before we get started, for those folks who don't know who you are, tell them a little bit about yourself and your career. How did you get to this point? Wow. Yeah, I, I dropped out of college, and I was trying to figure things out. I spent my 20s playing music and I tried to have a video game company and was pretty confused for a long time. I did like playing music though. That was fun and got to tour around a lot. And I guess I just kept picking up these types of gigs that increasingly involved things that looked like product management. And at that time, it was more like a friend would say, you got to come here and help us with something. I'm not quite sure what it's called, but we've got these engineers and designers and we're trying to figure this thing out. Like there must be something you can do to help. And I would help. So I kept doing that and then progressively got jobs. I got really lucky at the time. I had a couple key people who would always bring me in. So they would get a job and kind of, it was our land and expand strategy. So they would land. And then my friend, Bruce, who I made the video game with, would call me in and then we would work. And some of those companies didn't do so great. Some did great. And that's how I progressively got into more product management at the time. I mean, the meantime, and a lot of times I had funny 
jobs. Like I rode a bicycle taxi in New York City for a long time. I worked as a in a PowerPoint sweatshop at investment banks and also at Viacom, where they basically churning out PowerPoint, like hundreds of pages of PowerPoint all day. But that was pretty good training because, you know, during the first dot-com lead up into the, you know, early 2000s, late uh, 1990s, I was kind of working in an investment bank at the time, pretty much having to read investment material for all the dot-com <laughs> companies that were going to go public. So just a whole series of kind of weird things. And then I slowly converged more and more to getting full-time gigs in, in product management. A little bit of UX research was a lot of fun. And, you know, I tried that for a little bit and kind of brought me to where I am today, a series of product management jobs, and then the sort of unique job at Amplitude where I get to evangelize different ways of working and talk about them and coach teams. And I kind of treat what I'm doing as a product. So I, evangelism itself is a product. So at most SaaS companies like Amplitude, the whole company is the product, if you think about it. Like everything we write, all the content, our customer success, professional services, everyone is part of the product. And so it fits well with my way of thinking. And so that's kind of brings me to where I am today. I love that story. It mirrors a bit of my story as well. I played music for a long time. And hearing you tell yours, I regret not naming at least one of my bands PowerPoint Sweatshop. Oh, that would have been great. That would have gone over really well. The thing is, we worked graveyard shifts. So PowerPoint Sweatshop would need to play at like eight in the morning in Times <laughs> Square when all the people were exiting the investment banks. Right. Funny thing at the time, there was so much money is that they would give us like town cars. And so I lived in a house in Astoria with other people that played music. And it was so odd because the succession of like four town cars would arrive, like these sort of limos would arrive outside our weird house in Astoria. And then the limos would descend on Midtown, you know, like we've got to get there by midnight right. and do it. So it was really funny. You know, it's just like a funny, odd scene that exists in pretty much all artists and musicians and oddballs were working there in the, in the middle of the night on this investment material. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So it's your, your career is going in, in a variety of different ways, different directions, yeah. but it seems, it seems to coalesce around product management. And so why? Like, why did you choose product management as your area of expertise and focus? Well, I, I mean, I, I really like the creative aspect of making things and always had a bit of an entrepreneurial streak, you know, with had a couple companies actually, or different startups and my own things. And then there is a part of it, which is the ability to kind of break things down really logically and methodically. I've learned that I probably have an inner information architect inside me. Like I'm just obsessively always categorizing and recategorizing information. And so that kind of worked with me well. And some of these things are just luck kind of end up doing things. And like I said, that one thing leads to another, leads to another. So when you did that, I mean, when we moved out here to Santa Barbara, I didn't have any connections here. And so I kind of did some consulting and coaching for a year and helped someone locally on their startup. And it was only after really pestering someone at a local company here to get a job as a UX researcher that I got that gig. So, you know, and that was six years ago, <laughs> like as of six or seven years ago, it was really questionable whether I would get a gig full time at places. Because if you move, you know, if you have a, and if you live, grew up in New York City and you spend 18 years there, you build up a whole network. But if you move, you know, this is like pre a lot of remote companies, you're actually starting from zero again, unless you're like really renowned and doing it. So that kind of cycled through different things. So 
I've always been drawn to this idea of the creative entrepreneurial endeavor and then all the like the kooky group of people, developers and designers and the personalities. I really like it. I think it's a lot of fun. And yeah, it feels feels fun. <laughs> That's why I like doing it. And it's a super interesting field. And, and it's interesting what you say about basically that you started doing this like six, seven years ago, maybe a bit more. And I, I want to call this out a little bit because there's a lot of folks who have read Forever Employable or listen to the podcast and occasionally will say, well, that's great, but I'm not 25 anymore. Right. I'm 42, I'm 40, I'm 38, I'm 50, whatever. Is it too late for me to start? If you don't mind me asking, at what age did you start sort of writing and specifically so writing a product? this is the interesting management? thing. And, and this is why I think it's also about drawing on different things. I mean, I had product management jobs when I was 33 or 32 or 34, but none of them were like fully clicking. You know, I was kind of, you know, maybe one company would fail or, you know, then I'd move to another company. And what I meant is that, so when I came out here to Santa Barbara, it was by no means a shoe-in that I would get, you know, I was still sending out like 50 resumes back in New York trying to get a job. So it was not a shoe-in by any means that I had established it. So if I'm 46, you know, that was like coming out to Santa Barbara here maybe eight or 10 years ago. So that was 36 or 38. And then I was trying to establish myself to do it. So I think though, that when people mention that it it is an important concern because, you know, now that I'm involved in product and, you know, if I've been involved in hiring or hiring panels, I mean, it is so incredibly competitive and there's really a need to kind of how to reframe your experience if you've been trying to do this for a while. It's not impossible though. And, and that's the thing is you, you just might have to work at it a little bit. So why start sharing your expertise? Why start writing? Why? What was the goal? In An your- obsession, basically. I remember that time, you know, there was a couple posts I'd written maybe on LinkedIn, maybe eight years ago or not or whenever. And it was sort of like, well, this was fun, but it was mostly that I had something to express. Like I had a very specific thing or dynamic or something I was observing and I wanted to express. And so I remember the first time putting something up on Medium at that time, you know, I was working at a company called Pendo and it was in the product space. And again, you know, I was meeting lots of companies, you know, so part of it is just being exposed to a lot of ideas that maybe trigger ideas for articles or posts. And then you are working at a company yourself. It's not like I was, you know, posting the company all the time, but at the same time you were hands-on and you were seeing what was happening. But I remember that time, you know, I was posting first couple of posts on Medium and just being like, it was a form of expression. And if a couple of people saw it, great. And Medium was interesting at the time because you sort of got, some people would find it. It was just amazing. Like, how did anyone find this? The same thing with LinkedIn. How did anyone find this? And so I just started doing it regularly. I might have now around six to 700 posts between different mediums and stuff. And I think I checked maybe 60,000 tweets or 55,000 tweets over these years. But in the beginning, it was very much just, you know, having some audience at all and trying to express these ideas. And I do remember this first, you know, I did this post about the feature factory thing and that just that one post was probably one thing that made it seem all possible because suddenly, you know, it's like, oh, it's 100,000 views and 200,000 views and 300,000 views. Oh, it's a half a million views. And I looked there. The mind the product person from Hamburg is calling me to go and do a talk about it. And so that kind of demonstrated that this was possible. But I had written, you know, probably a hundred odd posts before that one 
had happened. And in fact, that one was a purposeful effort to write the worst and catchiest title I could possibly have that had as a number in it. So it was highly manipulative on my part, you know, to do it. It's, it's amazing. I was part of a Medium research study. And Medium had sent me and said, you know, you've got to record yourself each day about your posting and what you're doing. It's kind of a cool UX research technique. And my main problem was the more, the better I tried to make the post, the fewer the people read it. So I thought to myself, you know, I'm going to demonstrate to Medium that it's possible to get a lot of traffic with just this title. And so that was the impetus for that post. I was like, well, what's the most angstful thing I could write about working in a feature factory? And what's the title that I should give it? Well, it should be 12 signs you're working in a feature factory. That's going to get everyone really curious about it. And then I'm going to show the medium researcher that that, in fact, was true and that I didn't want it to be true. I wanted all the posts that I'd spent a lot of time on, you know, to get a lot of traffic. But this is the, the backstory of it. It's really funny to do it. So, yeah, that was all pretty early on. But it was, an, to answer your question specifically, it was a creative output. It was a way to capture ideas, kind of form them work them out through my own system, you know, kind of like think about them by writing. And then when people seem to relate to it, there was also, yeah, there was, feels good when people read the stuff and say it helps them, you know. It's validation, right? right and it also, I figured out in a lot of these cases, I just wanted to help people. You know, I really like to help people. That's great. Do things. So that, that's a bit of the background. You mentioned Medium a lot. Obviously, that's that's worked for you. You mentioned LinkedIn a lot. Let's get specific for just a second here. Sure. About channels, channels and formats that have worked for you. So we talked Medium and LinkedIn. That seems to be two two fairly successful yeah. channels. You tweet a lot as well. Are there other channels that are working well for you? And if so, which ones? And how are you finding them? And, and are there channels and, and formats to content that you've tried that maybe didn't work? And what were those? And why do you think they didn't work? Well. I'm going to tackle that question from a couple ways. I always liked exploring new channels because I thought it was important not to get too comfortable in one thing. So LinkedIn was going and then I was kind of like, well, this is okay, but I, this Medium thing looks kind of cool. And so let me try it. And so I pivoted that. And I actually pivoted off of Medium. I was like, oh, well, what, what would else would work? So I did try, I would say it is worked, but not worked. I basically took all 400 posts off of Medium. I put them on this really basic static site. And expected, and I still got some of the SEO that was coming from the people searching from the posts and things. I wouldn't say that my personal site, like the cuddle.fish, has been all that effective, but it was good for what I needed it to do. Like I needed to force myself to disconnect from one channel. So actually, my philosophy is to basically disrupt your channels all the time and start over as a way to basically refresh yourself and then think about it. Again, like what you're doing, I'll probably do that with Substack. At some point, Substack's been very effective and I have this newsletter, but at some point I'll be like, what if I just did it all as little video things and I'd stop Substack? And so I obviously have the privilege to do that because I have a significant pull in traffic to do that. So specifically, Medium was very effective. LinkedIn was very effective. When I tried to like do my own domain, it wasn't so effective the thing I discovered about Medium is you need to find something that removes all barriers to writing. I never want to worry about a WordPress update. Yeah. I never want to worry about Netlify sending me something about how the package container has changed and that if I want to like repost on the Cuddle.fish, I need to think about something. You really need to find things that eliminate all barriers to just getting your creative output over there. One that was, I did this podcast with my friend Tark. That didn't it you know got a number of 
readers, uh, listeners on iTunes or whatever. Again, it was just too hard. Like I admire people who do podcasts, but us getting together and the editing, you know, it was really good. A successful format that I did that was really fun that maybe didn't work amazingly well, but was really fun is when I was a new parent, I basically found this new tool that let you just record a podcast directly into your phone. So I would, while my kid was sleeping or when my kid was in the backpack or on the front pack, I would basically walk around my neighborhood and I recorded a hundred three minute podcasts called (laughs) Cutler Rambles, you know, to do that. So I've tried all these different things. And so I'll continue to try different things at the moment. But yeah, at the moment, Twitter worked out great. Medium worked out great until I just forced myself off of it. The personal website didn't work all that great. The podcast experiments didn't work out all that great, but they're really fun and fun to do. And I'm sure I'll find other formats that I'm excited about trying. <laughs> to tie a couple of threads here together. So the beginning, right? You said, look, I, I'm treating myself as a product. I'm treating my job as a product. I talk about a lot, about that a lot in the book, Forever Employable, about how your, your career and your professional development is a product and you have to treat it that way. And one of the ways that we continuously improve our product is through experimentation. Yeah. What I'm hearing in your story is continuous experimentation and continuous improvement. And this approach as well, which a lot of organizations don't take, and it's difficult to do, right. <laughs> especially if you, if you found success, is to disrupt your own success with new experiments to see if you can make it happen over here, over there, or somewhere else, which yeah. is super duper interesting. And risky, right? It's risky as well, because look, what if the audience doesn't follow you from Medium to LinkedIn, from LinkedIn to Twitter, from Twitter to podcasts? Yeah. And then you got to rebuild. And so that's, that's super interesting that you've taken that risk. I tried a book. Another thing that failed is I tried to write a book in the middle of the pandemic that failed. And I had, you know, it was like, I don't know, $30,000, $40,000 of pre-orders. The money was right in front of me. If I could just finish this thing. And it was just too hard in the pandemic to finish a book. And the concept for the book was too ambitious and not like really well thought out from a product angle. You know, so one thing that I would caution people that's very specific against is that if you're generating a lot of content, it is natural for you to think that you could just combine it in a new way and then try to sell it or do something. That's a lot harder than you think. And part of the thing of doing all these different formats was to learn over the years about, I mean, I hate to, it's kind of a cliche This I like jobs to be done. Like what is the job to be done of John Cutler? Yeah. And I realized that, for example, my tweets are like therapy. They are not the Shreyas Doshi product wisdom tweets that are perfectly thought out that everyone's like, oh my God, yeah, that's so good. Yeah, Like that. <laughs> my gig is I actually am challenging people and I'm probing and asking questions and generating conversations. And a lot of my posts are, offering an idea and then asking people to further dig into it and do stuff. So part of this too is like finding out about what works, what really is your thing and what do you enjoy doing? And then what are, you know, people, what are people incorporating? And I mentioned that because of the book, because I thought, well, yeah, I mean, they just consume the tweets. I'll just make this book of drawings. But the tweets were actually extended narratives that I was building over days and weeks of pondering. And it was impossible to capture that in the book. I can't just take one of the tweets and said, see, this was valuable. And this is one thing about listening to your customers. They were saying, please just make a book of your tweets. So I was like, oh, okay, well, I'll just make a book of my tweets. But I hadn't applied design thinking to it. I hadn't thought like, wait a second, 
they think they want a book of my tweets, but they are actually engaged in these circuitous narratives that I've been creating for weeks or months. So I don't know if that helps. It's like, you have to really think it through sometimes what you're doing. No, absolutely. Look, and again, like it's really good advice, right? Just because somebody tells you, hey, you should write a book about this or make a book <laughs> out of this doesn't mean that that's what they actually need. And that experience may not live up to their expectations. Let's yeah. talk about this. Look, one of the things that continuously impresses me about you is how prolific you are. I mean, you really seem to generate an awesome amount of content through across all these channels. What I'm most curious about is how do you find the inspiration and then how do you decide what to write about? Because a lot of folks will say, look, a lot of folks will say, look, I don't know what to write about or everyone's going to hate me. They're not going to huh. like what I have to say. But you, you seem to have an endless bucket, <laughs> right? And endless well, bucket yeah. of ideas. How do you find inspiration? And more importantly, how do you decide, like, this I'm going to write, this is what I'm going to write about today. Well, okay. So first of all, as a philosophy, I'm going to end up writing about it all anyway. Yeah. So I don't worry about whether today is the day or not. Okay. And I also don't keep a list of ideas. I oh. just, if like, if it's important next week, I'll be remembering it last week. And sometimes I'm like, I had a really good idea for a post last week, but I forgot it. And I'm like, okay, that's okay. If it's important, it will come back again. <laughs> When I'm thinking about it. So I don't keep a backlog. I don't keep a roadmap of any of these things. Part of the thing too is I practice. And people think, well, what do you mean? And just like a screenwriter writes or anything, I mean, by doing things like doing a weekly post that I deliver every Thursday morning and by tweeting and doing that stuff, like I'm constantly actually practicing. So part of it is the idea that pe people think I must be like massively inspired for something. Yeah. And then part of this is that, well, no, I mean, like sometimes it just starts as a question. And in fact, sometimes even on my newsletter, I'll say, this is not going to be the best one. I'm just telling you straight up. I'm time boxing 60 minutes. I'm going to give you what I got right now in my head Yeah, <laughs> to do the thing. So I think that I, this is probably not actionable, but it's kind of, it sounds probably pretty weird to people. But part of this is just building the muscle to do it. And then part of it is I am in my day job immersed in this. And I don't even know how to describe it. Like, let's say if in a week, I might meet with 20 teams, so five, three, no, well, maybe like 15, 20 teams around the world, like the biggest companies and the smallest companies. If anything, I'm just struggling because so many ideas in my, are in my head. I mean, I'm just, I try to stay very observant and teaching these workshops and I'm kind of like, this is amazing. I'm genuinely fascinated by all the dynamics and and there's certain things too that I never resolve. Like, for example, a lot of the people who reach out to me are kind of passionate change agents within their companies, but they're burning themselves out. They're not paid for being a change agent. They kind of burn themselves out trying to change their company and then think, oh, I'm going to go into the other company. I've written probably 30 posts about that. So the other thing is that people think that you have to get that one post right. Certainly there are some writers who say, I'm going to do the post, like Marty Kagan is going to, I'm going to write the definitive post I have at the moment about this. So people stop bugging me about that question. Meanwhile, for me, I'm like, I'll probably be writing 30 more posts. I've done mandate levels one, part two, part three, part four revisions on mandate levels, thinking big one, thinking, thinking big, working small one, two, three, four, starting together one, two, three, four. So I'm constantly like working through it. And I think people need to feel that that's okay. It's not that the other way of writing is not okay. In fact, I really admire it. Yeah. But that's just not how I do it. And the funny thing, you're, you're involved in music. When I wrote music, I had the exact same attitude. I'm like, I'm going to just write the song I got today. 
And I would write the song and I'd record it. That's it. And but this was pre being able to just ship it to the world because I would have been that annoying friend saying, I got this new demo of this song. You've got to check it out <laughs> yeah. to do it. But I also had songwriter friends who were like, I've been working for six months, just can't get the hook of that song. And, and meanwhile, I'd be like, just write five songs. You could have written like so many songs and I'm just trying to do it. So this is kind of my psychology. But I think the high level thing is you got to tap into your own psychology and how you work. And I managed to tap into mine. And you can tell because it was the same thing for music as it was for writing. Like, I want to ship it and I've got this song and I'm not, I stopped being scared that I wouldn't have a song next week. Right. Because when you're scared, you won't have another song. That's when you really get paralyzed. Yeah. And I think a lot of folks are like that. And look, this is really great advice, right? To give yourself permission to write essentially the draft version and publish it, right? Yeah. Because you'll, you'll write the second draft and the third and the fourth and the fifth, right? You don't have to write the definitive piece on X or Y right. or whatever it is. Because like you said, you could end up blocked, right? Writer's yeah. block, whatever you call it for months at a time, if you can't nail this one particular piece, right? So just get it out there. Just ship it, basically, which is great. Yeah, but but also being respectful to the people. I say that, but I realize not everyone's wired like that. So maybe you could take a little of that inspiration into whatever style, like maybe ship it, you have a close circle of friends. And if it's good to get the muscle to ship it, but you are the type who wants to do a definitive piece, then ship it to 10 friends. And that's what we're like. Here for. <laughs> right. Inspiration is what we're here for. So yeah, which is good. Look, I want to get into something really interesting because this is this is a topic that comes up weekly for me. Somebody reads Forever Employable, they come back and like Jeff, that's great, but I don't want to be a consultant. I don't want to be self-employed. I never want. I never want to be my own boss. I just I, I like working in companies, and you know I want to maintain that for the the for the entirety of my career. You have a full-time job. Many folks who see what you do and, and others uh, and others like you assume that you're either a consultant or en route <laughs> to becoming one. Why work full time and still do this? And then kind of how does writing help your full time career? Yeah, it's funny because I hinted at this before. I think that the full time career helps the writing. <laughs> mm. And I think part of that, let's say I was a consultant, all I would do is write about all the messed up companies that would come to me. Like my job helps me meet some of the really perfectly healthy companies. They don't even need to hear from me. You know, like they're like, oh, you're the dysfunction person. We don't want to talk to you right now. I'm like, okay, good. That's good. Now, now I have a challenge here. I'm talking to you and learning from you to do these things. So I think that one thing is that it helps. Another thing, if I had not stumbled into this gig at Amplitude, I'm very grateful I stumbled into this job <laughs> because the temptation to become a consultant or someone when you have a social following or things like that is very high. And it's certainly seductive to do those things. But I think at the time, Sandhya, who was at Amplitude at the time, sort of probably read my mind a little bit about how I like being part of a team and I like being with a group of people and I like being part of something bigger than me. That's why I like being at a company. And I, I kind of don't want to be a cult of personality. Like I don't want to be John the brand. I kind of like representing. That's kind of how I'm wired to do that. So the couple of thoughts that come to mind with that question, I think one is, especially in product and the world that we're in, it is absolutely possible to write and generate content and generate opportunities or speak and work full time. It's hard. You need to balance your time a little bit and do that. But in many cases, your company might even be happy that you're writing. There's, there's some problems there when it comes to 
you know, getting legal or whatever, to, and you can't just necessarily post everything that you have in the blog, but a lot of companies are happy when people are willing to write about how they work. It's great for recruiting. You know, whenever we write something on Amplitude or I write something, it's really good for recruiting people. People say we found, so you can help recruit lots of people with good writing because people in the outside world are really respect when a company writes about how it works. You know, so that is an angle for the product side. But I think that the main thing is this gives you a plan B and C for some people. And so what it means is it helps you network. It helps you connect with interesting work that's happening that you might be interested in. So for example, you know, if I left Amplitude, I would be able to really easily get a job as a full-time coach at a company, probably coaching their internal teams. And that might be really interesting to me, but I wouldn't necessarily be forced to go out and contract, you know, be a consultant to do those things. The main thing is I do have to set aside time and do a little bit of time management to kind of get in the writing, especially when it doesn't really have to do with Amplitude. Mm. Part of that fits my style of writing, you know, kind of time box and don't make it too heavy. It doesn't need to be the definitive work of what I'm doing. And then absolutely, it, it helps you expand your network and expand your options for continuing to do full-time work and then finding more interesting work. It really is not an either-or thing. I've noticed this about people who do what I do or even what you do or other people is they actually then have options. Oh, I, if I wanted to go consult for a year to kind of slow down, I could absolutely do that. But then I could go back to full-time employment if I want. Yeah. And so I can go back and forth. Now I'm privileged, I'm white male. There's been a lot of good things that happened to me. You know, my parents set me up well. I was able to drop out of NYU and then still like scrape by. So a lot of really good things have happened to me to do that. But at the same time, I think that it's something that, that it's not an either or type of thing. And you're absolutely right. People for a long time, people said, oh, I thought you lived in England and you were a consultant this whole time. Yeah. It's like, no, actually I live in Santa Barbara and I work full time at a company. Oh, really? That blows me away. <laughs> so it's a good story, right? And what you're saying hits on, hits on the, the crux of the matter is that this is laying a foundation for you to be able to do whatever you want if and when you choose to leave a company or if they choose to let right. you go or if, or if they go out of business, right? You don't want to be John the brand, but you are John right. the brand, right? <laughs> and how are you reconciling being a thought leader with your employer? Are they ever concerned that you'll outshine their brand? That type of thing. So I, I agree with you 100% that what you're doing is great for the hiring brand of the organization. Yeah, I say that all the time. But there are situations where an organization, a lot of folks will say this, my company's concerned that I'm outshining them, that I'm better known than they are. That's my goal. Is there a reconciliation that, that had to happen at Amplitude? I'm sure that in Amplitude, there are people who maybe haven't spent time talking with me who's kind of like, well, this is the John show. You know, they'll <laughs> right. probably think that to do right. this thing. And I think, though, you know, it's interesting. I mean, there were a couple of key moments. I remember the CEO of the company, Spencer, noticed something I tweeted and said, John, what, what have I done wrong now? And I said, <laughs> hey, Spencer, let's chat. You know, I spoke with him and I said, Spencer, I will let you know when I'm, I'm talking about the company. <laughs> like, I'll do that. And I try to make it really clear to people internally as well that I'm talking about the unique nature of my role. Where it's really like outward facing to be able to kind of collect things. One thing I would add that's very actionable to people is if you have an area you are very passionate about and there are companies that share that passion, the reason I have this flexibility is that I found a company that has complete overlap with what I'm talking about. If the world can achieve a more outcome impact focused way of working, 
they will buy Amplitude. Right. So I start the talk by basically saying, I'm not here to sell Amplitude. Amplitude will sell itself. Let's talk about what we want to talk about. Yeah. And then I thought to myself, well, that's pretty rare. But I think everyone who's listening might have some area. Like if you are a real developer advocate in a certain area and you've built up a community of people, there is a company. There are probably companies that would not be a good fit, but there may be a company out there that is a really good fit. And you might even want to ask them. You, you might want to ask, hey, do you want an evangelist? But it could work in the other direction too. You could be internal within a company and you could say, you know what? I really think there's a good fit between what I care about and what the company cares about. Let's chat about how we could blur the lines here a little bit and I could be more outward facing about my involvement. And the company might say, well, sure, that actually fits exactly with what we want to fix with. You know, back to your specific question, I don't think the company's worried about me outshining them. I think when people get to know what I do internally in the company, they're pretty comfortable with it because they see that I've learned how to navigate this kind of fine line between my own network and then the company's thing that they've done. And then I'd also encourage people to think that that just because your company has a problem with it doesn't mean there might not be another company out there that would say, wow, we could work with this. Yeah. We could find a way to allow someone to be more, more of a personality representing the company. And here are the, here are the boundaries of that relationship that we have an agreement that we have. Like when I joined Amplitude, I said first to Sonia, I will never post about Amplitude. Yeah. So do not hire me for my social network because that is my brand. So I'm not going to post, come on out to this webinar, everyone, right. if I don't think it's going to be a good fit for the people. But when there is a webinar that I'm doing, like I did a webinar recently on North Star and OKR, which people are really interested in, I went all in. 3,000 leads that we normally spend N number of dollars to get those leads. Yeah. Amplitude is very happy with that relationship. They're getting a really good return on investment from John Cutler. So I think that the thing is that you can find just because your current employer is not creatively thinking about it doesn't mean that maybe a new employer might not think that, or you could start building the groundswell for it, test your own employer out. And then maybe if they're not into it, try to find another full-time gig where it's a good overlap. It's really good advice, right? So a lot of folks will say, well, I feel stuck or my, you know, my employer will let me do this. I think the first conversation is to ask. Yeah. <laughs> I love that, right? Just why not ask what the worst thing they can say is no. And then you go right. back to kind of what you've been doing the whole time. Looking for organizations where this might be more of an option is a super interesting option these days. There's plenty of opportunity out there. There's plenty of companies, a lot of the talent shortage and so forth. And so I think it's, it's super interesting. John, we're going to wrap up here with two more questions. One more serious one, one more fun one, and then we're going to say goodbye. So if someone's working in-house right now, has no intention nor desire to go out on their own, right? We've talked about that. A lot of folks tell me that, which is cool. What do you recommend they do to ensure that they stay employable in a world of increasing uncertainty and decreasing corporate loyalty? Yeah, I think that the main thing is to find your tribe. So find the group of people who share your beliefs that are out there and connect with them. And if it doesn't exist, create that group. One thing I would add, those people sometimes say, I want to start a community because there must be other people out there who think just like me. Therefore, I'm going to be the one to start a community. Starting community is really, really, really hard. <laughs> so ideally, find the community that exists. Like, where are they currently hanging out? I was talking to someone recently. They said, I started my community for product management. I wrote a manifesto for product management. And I've only gotten like 100 people signing it. And I said, that's not a lot of people. 
And then I was like, well, what about over there? There's like 50,000 product managers. Ask them about manifestos. Oh, I asked them about it and they tried that seven years ago and people aren't really interested in product manifestos, right? So it's kind of like you should definitely explore what's out there before you think you need to start it. So find the tribe of people who are interested because more and more, there's other people out there just like you who understand that they need to keep their practice and their chops and their connections of other people strong because companies are fickle. Companies come and go with this. And so I think that that's the main thing is you have to find that group. Now, creating content and contributing is a way for you to give into that community. The community will give back to you. Right. Every day I receive one to five anonymous vignettes from companies. People are like, John, I know you love this stuff. Check out what happened right. in this situation. Just don't share it with the names or whatever. I'm like, all right, cool. So if you give into a community, it will give back to you. And that would be the model I would think about. And also, but just don't think it all always needs to be entrepreneurial. You know, I think people always think like, there was a thread recently on a, for a group of coaches people talking and people are like, how much should we charge for our contracting and consulting work? Yeah. Now, what was very interesting is I know some of the people on that thread that have alternate business models. They give away a lot, but you know what? They're invited to invest early in startups and make millions of dollars. Yeah. So the people on the thread were arguing, you know, should I charge 10K or 20K or should I charge $20,000 to scare away perspective, basically like pricing mechanics for running your own business. And I was laughing because as there was a subsection of people on that thread who had completely different models that yeah. they were working. And so one thing I've noticed is that people are full-time think the community I get involved in or the thing that I do must generate money. And the beauty of having a full-time job is it does not need to generate money. You know, there's books that do really, really well that earn people 10, 20, $30,000. And I'm not diminishing that amount of money, but for the amount of work you put into the book, at the end of the day, you were making like $20 an hour. Right to do less. your book. Yeah, or less. And then meanwhile, it's kind of like, I'll just give that stuff away. I've given away three half finished books. I'm just like, oh, I wrote this book on intuition. You know, you should just download it. And people would say, that's crazy. But the point is, it's about putting the building, the building blocks in place to have real long term. So you're not beholden. People put the contractor lifestyle on a pedestal, but it's really hard. It's very linear. You must work to get money. You might write a book, but it just helps you get more work. You might talk at a conference, just covers the travel a little bit more. You're not going to make a lot of money off of that. People put that consultant thing on a pedestal. Meanwhile, there's creators out there who have like Twitch channels who are doing teaching and learning and thinking about scaling what they know that are making seven figures or more yeah. as creators. So I think that part of this is also people think that I'm going to leave when I can work for myself as a contractor. And I must charge immediately. I'm going to create a community and charge people $50 a year to join my community around product because I want to network. And meanwhile, I would say to them, like, you've got a job. Just keep that job. Think long term. Like, join a community of 50,000 people and give a lot of content away for free until you can connect with them. And that I'm the sort of epitome of that strategy. And it does work if you're willing to commit to it over five years or you know, however long I've been doing it. It does not, and it is a privilege to work that way, obviously. So some people are forced to leave because a company downsized and they must start earning money right away. So I'm not diminishing that at all. That's a very hard thing to do, obviously. No, but that's great. Time frame is, is important to, to note as well, right? So this is, if you're treating yourself as a product, think about the success of a product. Very few products succeed overnight. 
or even right. <laughs> year. So giving it two, three, four, five years is certainly a reasonable time frame. All right, John, one last fun question, and then we're going to wrap it up. You've been a musician, you're a speaker, you've been on stages all over the place. What's the coolest stage you've ever been on? Anywhere okay, in the just world. sticking to the product stuff, not well, the no, music could be, stuff. Could be music too. I don't know. The music stuff's like Hollywood Bowl, like that was really cool, or um, the Merriweather place in Boston. That was like a big stage. I mean, there've been like, some really cool stages for the the stuff, the the product stuff. I mean, the mind the product stuff's really cool. Like they treat you, they treat you more like a rock star than being in like crappy opening bands ever were treated you know so like yeah the mind the product group of it's like really cool to speak on the the stages that they've set up and like that's been really cool but yeah i think yeah the mind the product stuff has been they're just so nice they're like really nice and treat the speakers really well and make like a real effort to make the event great um to do that so amazing john cutler thank you very much this was inevitable folks have a ton to take away from this i appreciate you making the time Best of luck to you, and uh, we'll talk soon. Yeah, my pleasure. Really amazed with what you're doing with all this community. You're doing it too, so I'm really impressed with this this thing. So cool. <laughs> Thanks, John. All right, have a good one. Hey, it's Jeff. Thanks again for joining me for this episode of Forever Employable Stories. If you enjoyed the show and learned something new, tell a friend. The best way you can help us grow is to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and send this episode to someone you think can benefit from it. As always, feel free to reach out and connect on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you. Do you know someone who has a great forever employable story? Someone who has built a platform and an audience using their unique skills and experience? If so, I want to talk to them. Send me a note at jeff at guthealth.co and let me know.